should I choose to get married or not? Should I choose to have children or not? Where am I going to choose to live? Like the, just the default grid we use is, is this going to benefit me? Is this going to make me happy or not? Will this allow me to express myself? And so what Jesus does is he comes in and he invites us into a, a far bigger and better story than the me story, uh, namely life in his kingdom. And so we're now at a point in Matthew where we've moved from his main teaching in the Sermon on the Mount to now we're getting the first real picture at who the king of this kingdom really is. And last week was pretty comforting, right? Because it was all about Jesus healing people and bringing in outsiders. And today it's a lot more confrontational. And uh, one of my friends told me this story of he was reading his little girl, the Gospel of Matthew. And he was just reading it to her, and she's kind of, you know, it seems like she's half checked out, half checked in. And he's reading along, and then he gets to this section where a guy says, basically says, like, Lord, my, my father died. I, I want to go bury him. And Jesus is like, I don't care about your dad. Just let the dead, bury their dead and follow me. And suddenly the, the girl perks up, and she looks at her father, and she goes, Jesus didn't say that. <laughs> and she's like, you're just messing with me because you're trying to make sure I'm paying attention. And he goes, no, it's right here. You know, Jesus, Jesus says right here. She's like, well, you know, I can't read. This is unfair. And... But the point is, is what she is pointing out is this, she's being honest with what all of us should say is if we're honestly and clearly looking at Jesus, he is always going to confront whatever two-dimensional view we have of him, right? For a lot of us, that's Jesus would never upset me, okay? And so what we're going to see today is like how do you know that, who is the real Jesus and how do you know that you've met him and how do you respond when you do meet the real Jesus? And notice this is all one scene. This is why we're doing it together. So it seems separate because of the, you know, the titles in your Bible if you have those headings. But it's basically like a film with, without any cuts. You know, it's just a, a one cut film. If, I don't know, Cody, if that's the, if that's the term for it. But yeah, there aren't any camera cuts. It's all just one, it's all one scene. So first he's on a Jewish side of the lake. This is with the, uh, the cost of following Jesus passage, then he crosses the sea, and then he lands on the other side. So it's all one scene, so that may help to better imagine what's going on here. And so in these three encounters, we'll just, we'll look at it this way. First, we'll see three encounters with the real Jesus. Next, we'll see, how do you know you've met the real Jesus? Because we see how these people respond to him. We can ask, how do we know we've actually met the real Jesus? And then number three, how should we respond to the real Jesus? Okay, so three encounters with the real Jesus. Uh, how do we know we've met the real Jesus? And then uh, number three, how should we respond to the real Jesus once we've met him? Okay, so first number one, three encounters with the real Jesus. We'll just follow, follow this uh, starting at the top. And so this first section, you could call this the encounter with two would-be disciples. And here we see an example of why Jesus is infamously bad at PR, Okay, so first, uh, an individual comes up to him. He's described as a scribe, and he was, a, he was an intellectual elite of the day, a religious elite of the day, and he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And you get a sense of self-centeredness in the statement. Notice he's the subject and the hero of the statement, like, I will follow you. And you almost get the sense as well, like, you know, he calls Jesus teacher, which is, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, everybody who calls Jesus teacher is an outsider, and so you also kind of get the sense of he's like, oh, well, I'm a teacher, you're a teacher, it's your lucky day that I'm going to, you know, join, join, your, join your clan. And you could call, call this guy the, the over-eager follower of Jesus, and essentially how Jesus responds when he says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying, dude, okay, I love the zeal, but you're redlining right now, and you need to 
tone it down about 500 notches. Okay, because in your mind, I am a nice accessory on an upwardly mobile life, right? I can enhance your life in some way. But you have no idea of the cost it is to follow me. And in fact, you know, it, the whole point of his statement is when you start following me, you're going to lose any right to any kind of predictability or comfort that you have in your life. Okay, and there should be a word to many of us in the West who say we know Jesus, but in reality, we're more shaped by the American dream way of doing things. Okay, and so first he, he's cautioning this guy against being overeager. Okay, and then next we see if the first guy is overeager, the second guy you could say is overcautious. So another person comes up and he says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And you think, yeesh. <laughs> okay, but probably what's going on here is, at least according to most scholars and commentators, this man's father probably hasn't died yet. But what he's saying is I'm waiting. My father's probably going to die soon. And I'm going to get the inheritance when he passes away. Okay, so I, I want to wait till he, he dies, then I'm going to, you know, do what is my duty to help bury him, but then I'm going to get the inheritance. In other words, he's saying, let me just get some things in order first before I follow you. And Jesus is saying, like, whatever the circumstances, whether his father's already died or whether he's about to die, Jesus' point isn't don't care about your father. His point is, I am so worthy of your devotion and worship as your creator and redeemer that all loyalties, even good ones, should be a distant second compared to the primacy of discipleship, is what he's telling this guy. And I, I think about when I used to work as a strength and conditioning coach, uh, I got to work with, uh, in particular, fighters, baseball players, and track athletes who were like top 10 in the nation in, in their craft. And what was so clear about every, it didn't matter the sport, with every single individual, as soon as you meet them, you know, even before they say anything, it's just so through how they dress. Like you can just, they just exude what their sport is. Like you can, you know, and especially once they begin talking, how they, how they eat, how they train, how they order their priorities. It's so clear what their number one priority is in their life, right? And Jesus is saying, same thing for you. It should be so clear to people you date, to your family, to people in your work, what or who is your number one priority in your life. Okay, so this is the first encounter, okay, with, with the real Jesus. Now they get into the boat, and Jesus' disciples here, it's probably his main group of 12 who get into the boat with him, and they get into the Sea of Galilee, and notice that Jesus, he says, he, he, he gives orders to go to the other side. And so they're on the, they're, they're on the lake, and the sun is setting, and the winds pick up, the rains pick up, and the waves go from choppy to big to terrible. And it was common because of the geographical layout of this lake. It was about 700 feet below sea level, and there were hills, mountains on either side. And if you've ever heard the term tempest in a teapot, okay, that, was, that was common here on the sea. And so these, the fishermen, his disciples, Jesus' disciples who are with him, this wouldn't be anything new, a storm, okay? These guys are sea-hardened fishermen, and so they, they sail this lake probably every single day. I keep saying lake. I think Luke calls it a lake. But it's a, it's, it's a giant lake, right? You can't see the, the ground on either side. And so they probably don't run to Jesus immediately when the storm picks up. Like, the text kind of gives that example, but because of how 
condition they were, except for Matthew. He was a tax collector, so a soft-panted bureaucrat. He's probably hiding below deck. Okay, first, like, the storm comes, and they're thinking, okay, we know what to do. So they do their fishermen things, right? Like, okay, we know how to handle this, but eventually the storm becomes so overwhelming and terrifying, and the boat's probably going vertical, that they don't think they know, I am going to die, and so at this point now, they, they run to Jesus, and they say, save us, Lord, we're perishing. Or in the original language, it's just three words, save, Lord, dying. That's all they can get out. And then Jesus is asleep. That's hilarious. <laughs> Jesus is sleeping, and it's as if he, you know, he's still rubbing the sleep out of his eyes, and he looks at them calm as can be and says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rises and rebukes the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And notice the detail here, the winds and the sea. And this is significant because he might stand up and say, peace be still, and the wind dies down and it just happens to be a coincidence. But he stands up and with a word tells the sea to be still. And it's not just the wind dies down. But if you've ever seen an, an ocean after a storm, even after the winds stop, right, the ocean is still, the waves are still oscillating. But he says, peace be still, and like, even the waves become smooth as glass, and all becomes silent. Okay, like an endless, indrawn breath. And now the disciples are thinking, who did we get in the boat with? Okay, encounter number two with the real Jesus. Number three, they get to the other side. Now this is Gentile territory. Okay, so where they're coming from is Jewish territory. Now they're in Gentile territory. And it says that they, it says two demon-possessed men meet them. And so you can imagine the disciples, they're still recovering from this sea incident. And they're timidly following Jesus out of the boat. And now two demon-possessed men meet them. They're like, oh my goodness, like what is going on here following Jesus? And they're described as so fierce that no one could pass that way. And from other gospel accounts, we get the impression that they are so physically powerful that even soldiers in chains couldn't contain these demon-possessed men. And so here, this is probably a good time for, you could call it a, an excursus on demons. And s- somebody this week at community group was like, so are you going to talk about the demons this week? And yes, we're going to talk about the demons this week. I think for, you know, whether you're a Christian or not, it's hard for us to make sense. Like, what do we do? With this, with this story, like, he's talking as if this is real, but most of us in here, to my knowledge, haven't seen, you know, somebody possessed by a demon. And so just a little excursus on demons. And here I'm drawing from a, a pastor in our network named Hunter who gave a really great summary on this. But in sum, the Bible talks about demons. They, uh, the Bible describes them as personal spiritual beings who are in rebellion to God. So just as there are physical, personal beings, humans, who are in rebellion to God. There are personal, spiritual beings in rebellion to God, known as demons or angels that rebelled. And they work to thwart God's purposes in the world and to incite suffering. Now, because there are a few accounts in the Gospels where the Gospels describe a demon-possessed man as, like, pretty similar to how you would describe somebody who's a schizophrenic or somebody who has seizures— And so what a lot of people think or assume is, well, of course, you know, ancient people, they didn't have categories and understandings of mental illness and family systems and psychology. So, of course, if they see somebody with a seizure, maybe they're going to think they're they're possessed by a demon. But that's quite an assumption. 
Uh, Because when we look at the gospel's own accounts, we see that while it's true that, yes, we today certainly have more details of the categories of mental illness and physical illness, you know, brain chemistry, cellular function, and, and all of the above, we have a greater understanding of the details of these categories, but the ancients and the biblical writers had more categories with which to work with. So they acknowledged categories of mental illness and physical illness, but they also had a category of demons and sin. And an example of this is we saw this uh, a few months ago in Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus comes on the scene, it says in beginning in verse 23, Matthew chapter 4, he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, healing every disease. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures. That word there for seizures is a broad term for mental illness, actually. And paralytics, and he healed them. So even in this passage right here, you can see a category for mental illness, for physical illness, but then there's also a category for demons. And so what this means is the biblical writers, this gave them a, you could say, a more sophisticated and more complex understanding of the world, right? It helped them account for the, the stubbornness and the, the sheer breadth of the problems we face in the world, Okay, which is, a lot of us were very naive to this as, as modern people. It's not just people being people. Okay, they're real personal spiritual beings seeking to thwart God's purposes. Now, as we think about how do demons influence people, okay, this isn't a comprehensive lesson, but here just, this may be the most helpful. Generally speaking, when we see the Bible talk about demonic influence, it's not in terms of possession like, we just become a, a puppet. And by the way, especially if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, a demon can't just puppeteer you. But typically how the Bible talks about demonic influence is through the realm of attitudes and ideas. So as an example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Beware of, of pride, because if you're proud, you fall into the trap of the devil. Meaning if you carry an arrogant spirit, Christian or not, okay, he's writing to a Christian, You're giving demons a greater ability to influence you and use you. Here, Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about if you're harboring resentment towards somebody or anger or bitterness and you're refusing to forgive and to reconcile, you are also opening yourself up to demonic influences, meaning it's going to be a lot easier for Satan to use you for his purposes, not Jesus' purposes. Okay, that should, that should give, this give us a lot more pause as we think about resentment. Or one other example in First Timothy chapter 4, uh, Paul describes false religions or false ideologies as being teaching of, teachings of demons. So if you hold or one holds to any ideology, right, and everybody has an ideology, right, that, that, that they're a fundamentalist about. If you hold to an ideology that's not the gospel of Jesus, demonic forces can, can use you. And so what's going on here is this, the, the Bible helps us have a, it helps us see things more clearly uh, for what they really are. And, you know, maybe you're here and you're really skeptical. I would just challenge you to think, are you able to really appreciate things for what they are, especially the breadth and the depth of the problems in the world? And in fact, even uh, just, it's interesting, I came across an article, it was written last year. It was in a UVA, University of Virginia, political journal. And the professor wrote an article in which he's asking the question, he's talking about the war in Ukraine. He's asking the question, is Vladimir Putin rational or irrational? It's a good question. 
And he, he talks about it, and he talks about it. It's like he doesn't seem very psychologically stable, and in fact, it seems he's become more unstable over the last decade. Now, could it be that it's hard to discern, right, just because of his age, right, or he's just, right, addicted to power? Many other things, yes. But could it also be possible that he's opened himself up to demonic influence and being used by demonic influence? And as believers, we have to keep that kind of possibility open, you see? So that's mainly how demons tend to work. Okay, so end excursus. We can talk more about after the service later this week if you want back to the story. The point here is these two individuals probably have opened themselves up to demonic influence to such a degree that they're pretty much just now under control of these demons. And they are a physical and spiritual force that the, 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 the surrounding city doesn't know what to do with. And Jesus walks up, and <laughs> I was kind of imagining it as, you know, there, no one has been able to defeat these guys. And you can imagine it maybe because Jesus, from what we know, didn't seem too physically imposing. And so if any of you have seen The Mandalorian, if you've heard of The Mandalorian, there's a character in there that's a baby Yoda figure. He's about, you know, this tall. And there are some scenes in there where he goes up against these foes that are just so much more menacing and huge than him. And you think, oh, you're going to get destroyed. And he just totally owns them. Like when Jesus walks up to these demon-possessed men, you can imagine the herdsmen nearby thinking, oh, you fool. And Jesus, in a word, he says, go. He body slams these demons and he tells them to go in a, into a herd of pigs. This is prob- probably about 2,000 pigs. And it says, Behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And if you're thinking, this is an outrageous story. Yes, it's an outrageous story. Jesus' world was just as ridiculous as ours today. Okay, but the point is, again, we're seeing Jesus' raw power on display. Okay, so these are three encounters with the real Jesus. So now let's... Let's ask the question, how do we know we've met the real Jesus? As we see the people in here respond to Jesus as they see him for who he really is, do we know that we've actually met him? Are we in relationship with the real Jesus? So let's go back to the disciples in the boat. So the disciples in the boat, when Jesus calms the storm, and it says, they, they exclaim, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is not a, whoa, bro, that was an awesome miracle. This is fear. Because according to the Old Testament scriptures, which the disciples knew, there was only one entity who could command the sea, that entity being God. So when Jesus, just like telling a domesticated dog to lie down, tells the sea to become smooth as glass, and it happens, they're, they're scared. Now they're more scared than they were during the storm. Because now they're thinking, like, who am I trapped in the boat with? So they see his raw power, but it, it's not just the raw power. They're also thinking, dude, we were terrified for our lives, and you're sleeping. You could have stopped this a long time ago. Why didn't you? So you can imagine what they're starting to think. Like, are you trustworthy? They're also saying, okay, Jesus is untamable. He's unmanageable. Okay, he's not just going to be at my beck and call, but he will use his power when he pleases and as he pleases. So that's the disciples in the boat. And then look at this incident with the pigs. In verse 33, the herdsmen of the pigs, they flee. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to Jesus. And when they saw him, they said, thank you so much for freeing us of these demon-possessed men. No. How does that? It says they begged him to leave their region. 
Okay, that's telling. So again, they're seeing power unlike they've ever seen. But also, like, think about their position. This is an agrarian cult- culture. And you destroy 2,000 pigs. Okay, it's like coming in and just causing the whole stock market to crash. So Jesus, he's profoundly disruptive. You remember when Elon Musk bought Twitter and everybody was just freaking out? I, I, I think people are still freaking out. I haven't really read up on it lately. But people don't like disruptive people. And so when they see, okay, he's super powerful and he's disruptive, they do what we would do if we meet someone of this caliber and this unpredictability. They just, they say, dude, <laughs> like, you need to leave. So how do you know you've met the real Jesus? You come to Jesus with a need. And all of us have needs. Jesus loves meeting needs. But you go to him with a need, and then eventually you come into contact with his power, and he he either allows you to suffer longer than you think is necessary, or he asks you to do something, right? Whether to confront something within you or to change something about your life. And you say, no, there's no way I can do that. It makes me think of, um, the more I've talked with counselors and therapists and read books on counseling, they say a common denominator in people who don't have success in counseling, it's because when they see a therapist, a good therapist, who's not only going to affirm everything about their life, eventually they get to a point where they have to confront something deep within them and also change something about their life, and they're not willing to do it. Because it's scary or it's just going to be too painful. Some of you know what this is like, and they walk away. And so what happens with Jesus is he either allows you to suffer or he just, he asks you to change something. And your faith, and this is the crossroads. You either surrender and follow him with all of your being or, like the city, you ask him to leave. And if you've ever felt that tension where it's like half of you is saying, Jesus, I want to follow you with all my being and the other half of you is saying, Jesus, you need to leave. If you've ever felt that tension either in the past or in the present, you know you've met the real Jesus. And I'd also argue this isn't just a one-and-done thing like in your conversion moment, but it's a series of moments along the journey of discipleship. And so an equally, if not more challenging question is, if you've never experienced that, like that tension of seeing the cost of following Jesus, you may not have met the real Jesus. You may not know the real Jesus. It's actually a, it's a good thing when you feel that tension, okay, surrender or ask him to leave. Okay, so that's how you know you've met the real Jesus. So now let's ask, how in the world do we respond when we do meet the real Jesus? This may feel heavy. It's supposed to, it's supposed to feel a bit heavy. Okay, so how do we respond when we do meet the real Jesus? And the first one is trust his character, trust his character. So I recently met with somebody who doesn't go to church, and we were talking about them potentially exploring church. And one of the things they said, they stopped and they said, you have to understand, I can't overstate how much distrust I have toward institutions, and in particular, institutional religion. And so it's going to be really hard for me to walk into a church. And they shared a little bit of their story, and it's because they used to be in an environment where there was a religious authority who didn't steward the power they had well, to put it mildly. Okay, and this is a common sentiment that we have in our culture, right? A distrust of 
institutions, but more so a distrust of someone with a lot of power. Because, right, absolute power corrupts absolutely, I think is how the saying goes. And this is true for any human except one, Jesus. And so, but when we are confronted with Jesus and we see he has more power than anyone else in the universe, we want to put up walls, we want to put up defenses, we want to tell him to leave, but we know we can trust his character first because, and we'll see this in the coming weeks, you ever notice how every time Jesus uses his power, it's, it's certainly not to harm, but it's not even for just a naked display of, look what I can do. He always uses his power to alleviate human suffering. Okay, we saw it last week with the leper and the centurion servant and Peter's mother-in-law. Okay, even in this passage with the storm and with the demon-possessed men, okay, he's alleviating the terror and the fear of the disciples and the, the state of the demon-possessed men. He always uses his power to alleviate human suffering. And this is most true of his greatest miracle, the cross and the resurrection. Okay, because when Jesus, when the winds in Jesus' life started to pick up in Gethsemane, and all of his friends were asleep in the boat, okay, he didn't turn on them. Okay, instead, no, he, he bowed his head in, he, he steered the stern into the storm of God's justice. And then at the cross, is where he paid the price and then rising from the dead, achieving victory on your behalf so that you can come into his kingdom. And so, you know, because of how he's proven himself, you can always entrust your entire being to Jesus because he will never, ever misuse that power. Okay, so, so that's number one, trust his character. Sometimes this takes a lifetime to do, but you have to trust his character. Number two, how do you respond to the real Jesus is, Submit to his lordship. Okay, that's a clear application from this passage. And depending on your, your temperament, your upbringing, there's some of you here like God's always the, you know, the disappointed authority figure, the angry judge, and we've addressed that. You know, we've seen that in other passages to help counter that lie. But there's others of you in here who maybe your main disposition toward Jesus is he's your, he's your best friend. He's your good buddy. And that's certainly true. Okay, we spent, we l- walked through all of Hebrews as a church recently where we looked at the unmatched sympathy of Jesus and how he identifies with you and your weakness. So he is a best friend. Hebrews describes him as the older brother you've always wished you had. But he's not just your best friend. And you see the problem is if you only or mainly view him as your best friend, what happens when you don't get something really good that you hoped for? or you're suffering or in anxiety for a long time. Because why would my best friend let that happen to me? Okay, a best friend also can't demand things of you. Okay, if a best friend, like, said the things to you that Jesus is saying, you'd be like, dude, what, where do you, yeah, a best friend can't make these kinds of demands. But Jesus is Lord of the storm. He's Lord over demons. And because he's so good, he can and he will make demands of you to deal with things in here, to give up a pattern in your life, to begin a pattern in your life. And you can respond like the disciples in the boat, I'm going to stay with you even though this is confusing and painful. Or you can respond like the would-be disciples or the city and say you can leave. And so that's number two, that we submit to Jesus' lordship. Number three, how do we respond to the real Jesus is we, we draw near to him amid the storm. 
And notice that, see, it's in verse 18, he gives orders to go over to the other side. So in other words, he's making a promise. We are going to go to the other side. Notice the promise is not, there's not going to be storms along the way. The promise is, I'm going to take you guys to the other side. And what's helpful about this whole section, chapter 8, is if we only had the healings in the beginning of chapter 8, but not the storm incidents, we would be prone to believe that discipleship to Jesus is mainly an up-and-to-the-right kind of life, right? Where we just go from good to better to best when it comes to our circumstances. But because we see both the healings, okay, and the storms, what this means is that journeying with Jesus— it is happiness and answered prayers, but it's also pain and fear. Okay, walking with Jesus means knowing and obeying him both when our hearts are singing and both when our hearts and when our hearts are broken. And both of these are equally valid expressions of faith. And when Jesus in the boat, when he looks at the disciples and he says, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? or little faiths is how you can translate that word. Are you little, why are you afraid little faiths? He's not rebuking them for their fear. Okay, so if you feel guilty about fears you have, you generally you shouldn't necessarily feel guilty about that. What he's rebuking them for is paying more attention to the storm than to him. And what he's doing is he's inviting them to draw near. And so storms are a unique opportunity to practice actually knowing and treasuring the Christ you're in union with. Okay, storms uniquely do that. I know there are some of you here who have just shared with me the in incredible pain you've gone through over the past couple years, and a common refrain I've heard is, I now know and treasure Jesus more than I ever have before. Okay, and so storms aren't necessarily, I'm doing something wrong, but Jesus is giving you a special opportunity to actually experience him and actually know him. Okay, and so pay attention to what you're paying attention to, in other words, Okay, so when you have the crisis of faith, okay, when the anxiety is waking you up in the middle of the night, when the relationship severs, when the painful text message comes in, draw near to the one okay, who, ha who alone has the power to still the sea. And he may not still the sea immediately, but he will bring you to the other side Okay, the day which all storms, both within and without, are laid still.